probably two years ago or so. He said, be very careful who you give your pulpit to. It's very specific. Because the words that are declared from this pulpit have to be his. And very important. So when I knew that Alexis and I were going to be gone, planned to be in Nigeria, obviously right now, I asked the Lord, who do you want? And without hesitation and with immediacy, he said, I want Brynn. Okay. And so that was the plan this whole time. And so as we got into this week, and I realized, okay, our passports are not here. Lord, what do you want now? He said, nothing's changed. He said, bring me to speak this morning. And so I'm so excited about what she has. And, and I, I'm introducing her for the purpose of you understanding that what she has is from the Lord. I was speaking with the Lord this morning. Because you, you know that he usually doesn't download to me things until, until that morning. And so I was just asking, will you tell me anything that you're going to speak through her on? <laughs> and he did, actually. I was really, really uh, excited when he began to tell me some things that he is going to speak through her. Brent, <coughs> if you don't know this already, uh, obviously she is part of Ignition. Those of you here know that. She is also... Ignition leadership. She is part of the court team here at Ignition. And what she has for you this morning, I can tell you, is from the Lord. So I'm just going to pray and then have Brennan come on up. Father, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you for this time together. God, I thank you that your time is perfect. I thank you that... You knew ahead of time and wanted us to be here even for this moment. So, Lord, your will be done. As we step in your will, Father, we step excited for what you're doing and what you propel us to do as you speak through us. Father, I pray that you... Seal this place with your protection. Seal Bryn with your protection. As she has been under heavy attack the last few days. Because there's no more, nobody more afraid of what you are going to do through her and speak through her than the enemy himself. And there's good reason for that. He should be afraid. So Father, we ask that your will be done. We thank you, and we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hi. Well, that was very nice. Thank you. Um, I do have a feeling that what the Lord has given me to share could potentially ruffle some feathers today. 
but we already do that on a weekly basis, so it won't be any different in that regard. How many of us understand that no really good, important paradigm shift happens without first there being some irritation first in the process? And why is that? It's because we like to be comfortable in the ways we think, right? That is why the Pharisees got so upset with Jesus. He just, he challenged everything they thought. And when the Lord wants our thinking to change about something, he, uh, it first comes with this uncomfortable period of wrestling for a while. Before our, our thinking is renewed and our, our, it becomes a part of what we live from. That, that's just the way it happens. And for that reason, I just have decided with the Lord that I would rather be permanently uncomfortable and, and have be in that position where he is allowed to change the way I think all the time rather than you know being comfortable and then thinking all the wrong things all the time. So a couple months ago, uh, my husband actually taught me a new word. He taught me a new phrase. I'd never heard this before. And what happened was uh, he worked from home, and he had a printer that stopped working, and this, is, this was a problem. So he spent a lot of time on customer service. He was on the phone. He's you know, finding out that now the printer doesn't communicate with the computer systems. And he was very frustrated, and he's telling me this, and he, he said this word and this phrase I had never heard before, but, but the Lord highlighted it immediately. He's, he's like... Yeah, you know, it's all part of this planned obsolescence. And I was like, what? That's a thing? You know, he's like, yeah, it's a thing. So I looked it up. Turns out it is a thing. And what it, what it is, is this is when companies, on purpose, they will create a product that is purposefully fragile or that has a limited lifespan so that... You know, in a period of time, these things will break down, and then you will have to repeat buy them. And, of course, they hope you will visit their company again and pay money to them again. And we see this all the time with, like, cell phones, right? You have them for a couple of years, and and after a couple of years, the screen goes weird or the it doesn't hold a charge anymore. And But the Lord kept highlighting this to me, this, this idea of planned obsolescence. And so I started thinking about it in spiritual terms. And so first I thought of, we know that there's actually, I was in Hebrews at the time, and we know that Hebrews speaks about how the law, as given to Moses, was never going to do what it needed to do to save humanity, right? That is why Jesus came and he inserted himself into time and became our sacrifice. And literally, Hebrews 13 says, says this, the first then, meaning the law, is obsolete and it's out of date and will soon disappear. So I was like, okay, that's good. I was thinking about that. The second thing I was thinking was this, and this is much bigger, but this overall plan of God since the beginning of time against his enemies. There's this line of thinking in the church, this kind of underlying idea that, that we know that Satan and the enemies, they were all created beings, and they were, but there's this idea that when Satan rebelled, it was somehow like a surprise to God, which is silly. Obviously, the Lord is not surprised by anything. And we can read from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, and we can see that the Lord 
is always many steps ahead of the enemy in every way. And with the sacrifice of Jesus, his intention was from the beginning to make the enemy obsolete. Okay? So the enemies of God and everything they ever did since the first human sinned was always and still is under the Father's perfectly planned obsolescence. And in no way has the enemy ever had the upper hand in anything, although to our human eyes it it looks like it, right? So for about a year now, the Lord has been speaking to me about what the blood of Jesus actually paid for and how we, even in the church, have missed it in large part. And there are things that we are able to live in now that no one really ever talks about. And something major begins to happen in our lives when we really pursue close relationship with the Lord and we appropriate the blood of Jesus in our, in our lives. Most of us understand this process and it happens in layers and we begin to evict out the enemy's lies. And, and in a big picture way, what we're doing is we're in this constant return to what our lives should have been if Adam and Eve had never sinned. Um, we've been at our house, we've, we've been watching the last couple Avengers movies. And uh, I, I think, I, okay, so there's Infinity War, and the one before that, I think, came out about three years ago. And this quote happened in this movie, and, and three years ago I wrote it down. Sometimes the Lord just highlights things to me, and I don't, I don't know why. And so I have like this running log on my phone of things. And I, I mulled over this for two years before I began to understand what it was really about. And in the movie, the, the, the entity making this quote is actually Thanos. He's the colossal bad guy in the movie, and he has this diabolical plan to depopulate, depopulate the earth and take out all kinds of people. But he says this thing. He says, as long as people can only see what is, they will never be able to see what can be. And I'm taking that quote, and I'm, I'm applying it to the Lord's purposes. But if we can only see our existence now on the earth, we won't see everything that Jesus actually made available for us to live in. And, and we know the big basics. Most of the church wouldn't, wouldn't argue with, with the big basics. We know that Jesus died to save us from our sin. We know that he died so that we would not be separated from the Father. We know that he died so that we would have eternal life. These are things most people wouldn't argue about. But what he has been showing me is that there is way more that he originally intended that we actually don't live in yet. And there's this assumption that, you know, well, this is all there is. And some of the ramifications of sin can be undone, but not all of them. And the more and more I, I am closer to the Lord, the more appalled I am by the statement I don't even know where the church got this idea because it's not in the Bible. And, and in thinking that way, and this, this is a strong statement, but we are severely cheapening the blood of Jesus. So we have to start with the foundation of, and I would encourage everyone, when you have time, to read specifically Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. It speaks about, and it says it many times in there, but Jesus' death, was once for all time, meaning every, everything that ever happened as a result of the curse of sin forward from his death and everything passed all the way to the first, all the way back to when the first people sinned. 
And when we appropriate the blood of Jesus in repentance and forgiveness, we are restored to right standing with the Lord. And, and even, even in our personal lives, this is what happens in a personal deliverance session. You, we, we've talked about that here. But in returning to right standing with the Father, when we, when we apply the blood of Jesus, we are returning to the place where Adam and Eve were before they ever sinned. It, as is, it is as if the fall never happened in our personal lives, okay? And so the blood of Jesus makes possible that perfectly planned obsolescence of the enemy, even, even for us per- personally. And so there's many ramifications of the fall of man that we don't often think about, and there's one I want to specifically talk about today for the rest of the time here. And, and honestly, I've never heard this talk before. Um, we're going to start in Genesis 1, so you can turn with me there. And, and really, I just want to sort of scan through this. Obviously, this is familiar, but just stay with me here. So in Genesis 1, the Lord is, is creating all things by his spoken word. And after every day, there is this phrase. You can skim through there. You can see all the days of creation. And he says this thing, God saw that it was good. Culminating down to verse 31, then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And then the Lord gives this directive to Adam, and he gives this warning. You can eat freely from every tree except this one, and if you eat from this one, you will die. So we go then into Genesis chapter 2, and... And this interesting thing happens because after all the good that the Lord has spoken of, that he has done, he, he basically says, this man that I've created, this man being alone thing is not good. I will make someone who is just right for him. And then the Lord takes a rib from Adam and he forms Eve, who is now part of him, but becomes another separate entity. And the two separate entities become one flesh. God's original intention for men and women was that together we would demonstrate the image of God to the world. Not, not any, either one in a power trip or uh, neither one dominating, but together they would assist each other in representing God's will on the earth. Okay? And I've heard many times that Eve, uh, as our, our translations of the Bible the words are very simple, but Eve was to be Adam's help. Basically, we've, we often are taught it as his assistant, okay? But that's an inaccurate description of what Eve's purpose really was. And when you do a study of the original words there, we find that women were created to be strong and equal in God's sight. Eve was to be almost like Adam's rescuer, and the sense there is, is in a position of military strength. The original intent of God is that Eve was created as Adam's equal, and her purpose was actually to guard him spiritually. She wasn't just, you know, created to be relegated to household tasks. She wasn't just supposed to do his laundry and make him a sandwich. I, and I, I do my husband's laundry. I do it happily. But that's not, that's not really the point. See, Adam's loneliness could not have been made right unless there was a suitable equal to him. 
See, Adam had already, he had already been given dominion over the earth. He had been given dominion over the animals, naming them. But Eve was different. She wasn't under the dominion of Adam, the way the earth was and the way the animals were. And you, you cannot be equal to a person in relationship and have dominion over them. You just can't. So Eve was created to be Adam's spiritual safeguard. She was to watch over him in discernment and protection and be his companion within the purposes of God. Okay? The word actually means that as long as Adam was living in submission and obedience to the Lord, she would be his greatest cheerleader and help. But if he stepped out and he veered off track a little bit, she was to be because she needs to be his greatest opposition. Understand, like, she wouldn't be helping him if she allowed him to go off track from the Lord's plan. Okay? And it would be her, her own connection to the Lord that gave her what she needed to do this. So understand that when Eve was deceived and she gave the fruit to Adam, she actually was going against her very created purpose that the Lord created her for. So let's look uh, specifically at the wording in Genesis. Now we're in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. So this happens, and the Lord speaks to Eve. After she eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, and the Lord finds them hiding. And then the Lord, uh, recently, you know, Greg said this, the Lord didn't curse people. He cursed the earth. He cursed the serpent. But what he did give them was a list of ramifications of This is what happens with bad choices, and this is what is going to be from now on. So he he turns to Eve, and he says that her pain in childbirth will be sharpened. And then he says this thing. Your desire will be to control your husband. Or some translations of the Bible say your desire will be towards your husband. But he will rule over you. It was like the Lord was saying, okay, you want to influence your husband away from my will? then unfortunately that choice is going to cause you to desire him, and this choice is going to be with you all of your life. He will never be able to fulfill you because that's not the way I created you. But you will look for it for the rest of your life, and your husband will actually rule over you. And there will be this inequality struggle from now on happening in your relationship because he won't recognize what you were intended to bring forth. Because in, the, in a way, this has failed him. And see, the, the curse from then on brought all kinds of relation, relational dysfunction. Now, Adam willingly followed Eve into disobedience. And then he blamed her. I mean, he may have well felt, felt betrayed. I, I don't know. doesn't really say that. And he may have decided that moving forward, he just wasn't going to trust her anymore. And so this brought on the distrust of women or the ruling over women from then on. And see, Adam was created from the ground. And now, under the curse of sin, the ground would resist his efforts in productivity. Eve was created from Adam. And now, there would be this resistance in relationship that wasn't supposed to be there between the two genders. And both of them would be, you know... Men would resist the spiritual help and and the guidance that women were supposed to bring. And even perpetuating till now, the church would continue teaching that this was correct. And both genders would now be left to kind of scrape by and, and get by in manipulation tactics with each other. 
because trust was diminished. And now, now man is going to feel like he has to take control. And this is when things went awry in the earth since the beginning of time. You see in different civilizations, there's, there was major oppression and, and ruling over women. And then even, I think, in, in Paul's day, in Corinthians, they were holding women up on this pedestal that were like gods. And both were, neither were the intention of the Lord. Both were incorrect. So the Lord started showing me that gender disunity started here at the curse of man. And this is a really touchy subject in Christianity. See, we're, we're born into this curse on the earth, and we don't know the difference, really. Um, Adam and Eve knew the difference. They, they enjoyed this perfect relationship with the Father and this perfect relationship with each other um, and, until the curse and its ramifications were known, and then they experienced the opposite. And it was pretty horrific. They, they lived probably in great grief for the rest of their lives. And so the rest of us are kind of born into it. And if we don't if we don't learn where the Lord says we can live, we can fall into it by default. And so I want to try to explain sort of my personal example with, with this. When I was younger, I had a wonderful father. I had a wonderful upbringing. And, but obviously born into the curse like everyone else, I didn't know as a young person or even as a teen really how to have close relationship with the Lord and so there is this tendency for women in life to feel like you're just constantly looking for something. You're constantly looking for something in your father or something in your husband or something that you, some kind of fulfillment that you don't feel like you have. And it's this, uh, like this gravitation that you're looking for something that no man was really ever meant to fulfill, right? And I remember having that desire as an adolescent, and my, my dad did the best he could. He was even affectionate, and he provided for me, but he did travel a lot, and I remember wishing that he would just want to spend more time with me, you know? And this, this idea sort of carried into my marriage, and I, I married a wonderful, selfless person, but for the first 20 years, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand that, that I, was, I was trying to expect my husband to fulfill me in ways that he was not ever equipped to do. He was never supposed to do. And it was this constant sort of desire for his time and his focus and sort of feeling like I, I never really had it. And so the Lord began to show me these things. And I, I didn't really know at the time what was happening. But through, through some very desperate circumstances, a lot of you know our family story. But when I entered into close relationship with the Lord, where my focus in, in pure desperation, my focus became him just day and night continually, a byproduct of this that, that happened at the same time was this kind of tearing away of this desire for my husband because it was off balance in the first place. And it was, an, it was actually quite an ugly process. Um, not only was I being torn away from, from what the curse of sin had produced in my life, but there is great warfare coming against anyone or any married couple coming into this realization. So it was this ugly process that lasted for about three years. And um, I know, I know we, you know, people say to us all the time, like, oh, you guys, you know, it's just amazing. Your kids love the Lord so much, and it's amazing to see your family. And you guys didn't know us during the dark ages. It was, it was bad. And my, our kids will tell you it was bad. 
And it, when it was this choice for the Lord, like, like no longer am I going to be controlled by him. And, and understand, it's not because my husband was controlling in any way. He never was a day in his life. But it was, it was something going on in my spirit where it was like, it was like you will no longer rule over me. And, and it's, that, it's that thing in Genesis 3.16 where he said your desire will be for your husband and he will now rule over you. Now it was going to be no more. And now my desire is completely for the Lord. He fulfills me. And when that started to happen, Jeff actually became free to, to understand his own relationship with the Lord and then love me better than he knew how to before. So in this way that I didn't even understand what was happening, I actually got what I wanted, actually doing it the Lord's way. And so I, I say this because this, this ugly process was the process of living under the curse and then with the Lord morphing out from under it and learning to live in what Eve was always meant to live in, the thing that she gave up at the curse of sin. Okay? And, and we have a lot of young people here. You know, you're... And the, and the Lord is trying to get you to this place now, before you get married. Because it's a lot easier to, under, to get to that place where you're completely fulfilled by the Lord. And that is what actually sets you up to be perfectly ready for marriage. And you won't, you know, victory can happen either way. We are testimonies of that. But it's a lot easier to learn this with the Lord before you get married than after. And so... What I'm starting to realize is that together as a couple, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus paid for, I could now experience what it was meant to be like, what Eve was meant to walk in. So this was really driven into my mind recently. As you know, we we married off a son and a daughter in the same day, in a double wedding recently. And, you know, there's always this big deal about about the, the dad giving away the daughter in marriage, right? This is, a, this is a thing that we do in weddings culturally. But, but for the godly people, there is a very serious spiritual transaction that happens in that moment. And so, you know, my husband is spending time loving Lacey as Christ loves the church. And she hopes that when she puts her in the hands of John, he will then take on that role and do the same thing for her that she has become accustomed to. And, but no one ever talks about the transference of a mother's careful spiritual care over a son. It's no less a transaction in the spirit. Because the assignment is the same for women to carefully spiritually watch over their husbands as it is for them to watch over their sons. So... It's the same transaction when I place Cole in the hands of hopefully another discerning woman. And that's why I could do that. And I made sure I told Jenna that I was doing that in full happiness because I knew that the Lord had prepared somebody for him that would take over that role in his life. And that is how it should be. This is the kingdom way of doing family. My point to all this is, ever since, ever since God began showing me this, I, I now live in my created purpose for my husband, and my husband knows how to live in his created purpose for me, and it manifests in these interesting ways. Uh, one day, and this is just 
a funny example. But one day, I was, okay, if everybody looks at their cell phone, what you put on your lock screen of your cell phone is whatever you love, right? So if whatever, if you look at your cell phone, you've got your pictures of your spouse on there, you've got pictures of your kids, you have, you know, I don't know, cars you like, pets, whatever. Whatever we love goes on our lock screen, right? Well, and I don't, I don't mean to be like hyper spiritual about this. I have scripture on my phone. It's, it's, it's just how I roll. I have scripture everywhere. I need, I need scripture. And so I put on there things that are um, either my heart cries to the Lord or something that is something He's driving deep in me that I, I need to see it every time I look at my phone. Well, one day I'm noticing like my husband has a picture of me on his phone, and it, and for one thing, it's this. 15 years ago picture of me and, and I, that's cute like he wants to remember me young and beautiful so I'm okay with that but but I I'm looking at this comparison one day and I'm kind of feeling a little bit bad you know I'm like Lord, he has a picture of me on his phone I I mean this is going to sound terrible I don't actually think about putting my husband on my phone and so I'm looking at that and I'm kind of laughing and then and then the Lord says to me no you love him better by being completely fulfilled in me and helping him in his life and his calling while you are focused on me. That was always the assignment of Eve, that she failed. He, he is to be a demonstration of my love for my bride. And so it's this beautiful picture through this cell phone, silly cell phone example of how he always meant for it to be. And this is how the most fulfillment comes. My affections are for him. My husband loves the Lord and loves me well. And this concept alone, simply of how marriages were designed to function, out from under the curse of sin, if the church could just really get this, there would be not a lot of need for marriage counselors. Nothing against counselors. But when you let the Holy Spirit be your counselor, everything falls into place the way it should. So what does this kind of living in, what does this look like in marital relationship? What does it take? It takes him knowing that my role is to be one with the Lord and suggest direction. It takes him being willing to listen. It requires my husband in humility to say, I may not know everything. I may need some help. And, and the Lord has given me this person to help me specifically. It takes me recognizing the weight and the importance of my calling before the Lord and the grave responsibility of being the watchful care and the safeguard. Never in like trying to control him or in any kind of controlling way at all or manipulation. It has to be born out of what is completely best for him, not any selfish motivation inside of me. I tell you what, honestly, I have, I have the fear of God over this. I would not dare try to manipulate my husband in any way or control him in any way. Because if I did that, I would literally be making the same mistake that Eve made. Only actually, no, actually for me it would be much worse because I have the tremendous privilege of living atoned under the blood of Jesus. So if I were to do that, it's way worse because what it's saying is the blood of Jesus is irrelevant. No way. So my job is to carefully discern and to watch over him 
so that he prospers in the will of God. And if he prospers, what happens to me? I prosper also. I benefit too. Uh, my husband, you, I've heard him say around here many times, he says, when, I'm laughing because he told me something about this the other day, but when Bryn tells me something, 99% of the time I listen to her because she's right. I think he said the other day he changed it to 99.8%. So. <laughs> okay. And that's, that's very sweet, and that's very complimentary to me, and it's nice to hear, but that's really not why he says it. He says it because he is functioning then with me the way he was designed to. And I'm functioning with him the way I was designed to. And he makes his own decisions. I, I don't make them for him. But when he's willing to hear, he, he can benefit whatever, with whatever the Lord gives me to speak, right? And I know we're talking a lot about marriage here, but please don't leave here today thinking like, okay, well, I'm not re- really married, so it doesn't really apply to me. There's actually huge implications in the church to understand gender equality that that go way beyond marriage. Because if the church could really get this, it would eliminate the backlash of the counterfeits. Like, do you understand the counterfeits that have risen up? This, um, I mean, feminism... All this gender confusion, all this talk about toxic masculinity, all of these things, do you understand they are, they are the counterfeits that have risen up as a result of the pain of the weight of the curse of sin? I mean, there, there is a toxic masculinity. It, you know, if, if, if the man is domineering and self-serving, okay, it's toxic. There also is, there, for that matter, there could be a toxic femininity. Women can be domineering and selfish just the same. It goes both ways. But there is a godly masculinity that is strong in love. And the counterfeits would go out the window if the church would just get this and appropriate the blood of Jesus to live in the equality that he always meant for us to have. And unfortunately... Until then, the counterfeits are really railing, railing as an answer in society, and this dysfunction is continuing. So we have to, we have to allow the Lord to train us differently, to dismantle the mindsets. It's, um, it's easy for us here in Ignition to say, because we, we have a small church here, but, and we, we have every age, and we have different skin colors, we have different backgrounds, and we would never... Discriminate. We would never overtly, and we don't, and we never would. But we are sometimes unaware of how prevalent this thinking of, of being under the curse is in our lives. A few weeks ago, um, we were sitting, I'm going to implicate some people here. A few weeks ago, we were sitting in an ignition leadership meeting, and there was this decision presented to all of us, we all had to make. And so there was then this decision presented to my husband that he needed to make on the spot, and he, he just at that moment didn't feel like he could make it. So we made this statement, and he said, he said, I'm going to need a little time. I need to pray about this. I need to talk to Bryn about it, and then I'll get back to you guys. And when he said that, there was a little tension there was a little tension in the room. 
And understandably, because I was there too, and I had already vocalized what my decision was, so there was this kind of thing in the air that was like, well, I mean, Bryn's right here. She already made her decision. Why do you need to consult with Bryn to make your decision? I mean, she, you know, she already, you, you need to make your own decision. You know, and there was this, this tension. And I thought, oh, he just went there. And so he didn't even realize at the time what he was doing was vocalizing this very concept I'm trying to bring forth today. And so, you know, Jeff didn't flinch. He was kind of like, guys, this is how I do it. I talk to the Lord. I talk to Bryn, who talks to the Lord. And then I make a decision because the Lord has trained me this way to make a prosperous decision within the will of God every time. And I'm not going to deviate today. So he did that. He took a day. He prayed about it. We talked. He made a decision. And it was a good decision. But it showed me in that, in that interaction, I thought, oh, okay. Okay. Even here, we have a little bit of work to do. We have a little bit of work to do to come out of this thinking of the curse of sin. And um, because it can never be said from here on out, and this isn't what was happening in this meeting, but it can never be not acceptable to hear someone say, I need to call, consult with my wife, or I need to consult with my husband. And what I am saying is that the opposite has to become true, that it would become unacceptable, unacceptable to make any important decision before the Lord without the mindset of the two genders functioning equally together in unity. And our, our calling is, is to learn to function in all that Jesus purchased for us. And this is really just the beginning of the conversation and we talked about marriage, but when we really get this, it will affect every other aspect of equality. And it will begin the process of unity that, that the bride desperately needs. Because it started first, and it went awry with the genders. It, it, it went wrong there in the first place, with the very first two people of the two genders. There are only two genders, by the way. I just want to make that clear. It's absurd that I would have to say that, but here we are, right? So, anyway, this is where it went wrong in the first place, and this is, the, this is where it has to begin to be corrected first for other kinds of unity to snowball. And so here's, here's the crux. I just really have a couple more things to say, and, and then I'm done, but here's the crux of it. If spiritually strong men do not begin to have humility and trust in what God has put in place for their safeguarding, they will never fully prosper in their purpose. If women do not really understand what it is like to be completely fulfilled by the Lord in complete surrender and take this responsibility seriously of watchful care over husbands, over sons, over other men in covenant relationship that we have to hear from God and speak what he gives will never be fully unified as a corporate church under the lordship of Jesus the way he intended it to be. We can't even begin to talk about nations or correcting other issues of racism until we get the gender thing right. And I suggest that if we do get it right, many of the other divisions in the church and beyond that will cease. There's one more thing about this, and I'm, I'm not even, I was wrestling on whether to say it or not. I'm, I'm not even sure the understanding will be there quite yet. 
but I, I do feel like I'm supposed to say it, so maybe it'll just be recorded, or maybe in a few months or years we'll understand completely what the Lord is saying here. But last week, when I was in the gift meeting, Alexis said something, and it, it provoked a thought, and then the Lord started speaking to me, so I got out my phone and typed down really quick what he was saying. And she was saying something about... Um, how the, the bride of Christ is in this state of being beaten down, this state of oppression where layers of oppression have been built up and the bride really doesn't understand their purpose. And so as, as she was saying that, this is what the Lord said to me. He said, As women have not understood how to function in their purpose, it is the same picture of the bride being under layers of oppression and not understanding its purpose. And as men and women get this, coming out from the thinking that the curse of sin brought on, so will it mirror the bride rising up from out from under the curse. It mirrors the awakening I want to bring. So as women rise up in their understanding of who they are, it is the picture of the bride rising up into its full purpose. And as one begins to happen, we will begin to see the other happen at the same time. And I'll just, I'll just close with this, because I know from the Lord that my, my own particular calling from here on out is probably for the rest of my life to talk about what he gives me in particular about living out from under the curse of sin in all of the areas that the Lord intends. And you may be you may be struggling with is that even possible or or you know when we look at what we see in the earth it is so easy to just not have the spiritual eyes to be able to see that it can be different. I want to tell you about an exchange of a conversation I had with the Lord and this is this is last fall. He was telling me um, for several weeks that the reversal of the curse of sin is possible for now, for this time period. Not pushed into the future as we've always heard it taught. Not someday when we're in heaven or someday thousand year reign or whatever. He was telling me, no, I want this for now. And... You know, because there's this, this feeling where people are just like, well, it just can't be good until the end of time when Jesus from, finally takes us up from the earth. So I was coming into this realization. It was blowing my mind. And I said, Lord, this is truly what you want to see. This is what is possible for now. And he said this. Satan has tricked my creation. Would my son's blood have been necessary if it wouldn't have covered everything? The power in his blood was payment for it all. Through the time of mankind, they had cheapened it to fit only what they could understand, making agreement to things that should never be. This is what is possible if my children have the faith to carry this. I don't, I don't know about you all, but I will choose to have the faith to carry this. I cannot stand, I can't stand the idea of the blood of Jesus being cheapened any longer. And this is really what learning, what, what he meant when he said, My, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it's all about. Okay, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to close in prayer, and then, Greg, you can come up. Father, I, I just love you so much. Lord, let us be let us be known as the generation who recognized your blood had been cheapened for so long and rose up against it. Father, you want us to live in so much more than we do. I want to experience it now. I want to experience everything that you say that we can live in now. Lord, I'm sorry, God, for the church. And I repent, God, for the church who has your word where it plainly speaks so many things and yet so much false teaching has risen up just because people couldn't believe, just because they couldn't see it with their human eyes. Father, forgive us for that, Lord, and let us only be able to see through your eyes everything, God, that you want to bring forth. Everything, God, that you want to see on the earth, Lord, let us be willing. Let us carry the faith for it. Father, we love you so much. In Jesus' name.